This is the most important election in the history of our country. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. Welcome to What's at Stake for the World, Global Perspectives on the U.S. Elections, a podcast series from SIPS, the Center for International Policy Studies at the University of Ottawa. I'm Christopher Bishop, Council on Foreign Relations, International Affairs Fellow in Canada, and I'll be your host for this edition of the podcast, which focuses on Asia. Asia is home to more than half the world's population, and according to some estimates, now accounts for over half the world's GDP. But Asia is also critically important for a host of other issues, from international security and climate change to human rights and public health. What's at stake for Asia in this year's U.S. elections, and how does Asia see the two candidates? To talk about these issues, I'm pleased to welcome two old friends. Shan Huang, Deputy Managing Editor at Saishin Media, joining us from Beijing, and Tash Minahara, Professor at Kobe University and Chairman of the Research Institute for Indo-Pacific Affairs, joining us from Kobe, Japan. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. I should, uh, I should add a disclaimer here that no one can possibly talk about Asia or about what Asians think in just 30 minutes, even with experts from Asia's two largest economies. The continent is just too big and too diverse. But I also don't think you can talk about Asia or what Asians think without talking to experts from China and Japan. So I would suggest that this podcast is the beginning of the conversation and certainly not the end. Sean, let me start with you. For Americans, China is the biggest foreign policy issue in this election, both because of the ongoing U.S.-China trade war and because of the coronavirus, which the Trump administration has blamed on China. How does China see the U.S. election and how does it see the candidates? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Christopher, for having us. Um, I think our biggest issue um, concerning Chinese leadership as well as Chinese public is that who will win the White House? So if Joe Biden wins the White House, does that mean a change of uh, a, a change of course in the next four years, the Sino-U.S. relations? Because as we know, as you mentioned, that the trade war and tech war, even you know, uh, escalating rivalries, um, you know, Taiwan issue. So all these, uh, you know, are really clouding the Sino-U.S. relations. I think, and uh, so a lot of people are in town are quite pessimistic about the outlook of uh, at least the most important relationship in the world. So does that mean Biden's uh, uh, presidency will change things for better for a short time? I think this is a big uncertainty. So the other side of coin is that if the uh, Trump um, win his re-election, that means it may institutionalize its anti-China you know, behavior and the rhetoric and the making uh, things worse off in the next four years. It means that the Senate-US relations may, you know, uh, you know, into a uh, more uncertain and choppy, choppier water in the next four years. Definitely, I think this is a top concern um, crowding the, uh, 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 you know, uh, bilateral relations. So when we talk about the uh, other issues, I think definitely there are four pillars for, uh, you know, U.S. presidential election. So COVID-19, uh, fighting COVID-19 and economic re recovery or re rebound from a, a health crisis and also the, uh, uh, police brutality and the social justice and also the Supreme Court uh, justice confirmation. But I would uh, emphasize the first two, uh, you know, uh, 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 part of the, uh, the, the election topics. So if the U.S. cannot deal with the COVID-19 in a 
effective and fast way, that means the U.S. economy will be uh, still stuck in this, you know, in limbo and cannot uh, come out of a crisis, um, you know, very effectively and uh, efficiently. So that means the uh, uh, the normal way of doing business will be suspended, 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 because we know that actually, when it comes to higher educational sector, we know China, uh, China, China is the biggest uh, uh, overseas students, you know. Uh, 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 in terms of the uh, uh, U.S. is the biggest recipient country for Chinese overseas students. So uh, now we know that uh, actually the pandemic has uh, uh, hit the U.S. higher education system a lot. So if the uh, COVID-19 cannot be con uh, contained and uh, the international travel cannot resume, uh, I think definitely will dealt a heavy blow to the U.S. economy. So another thing is definitely about the U.S. the uh, stimulus plan. We know if the Trump get uh, sorry uh, if the Joe Biden uh, elected, so people talking about the blue wave. That means the Democrats not just the uh, take over the White House, but also they take back the, the both chambers of Congress. That means that have you so people have recently see the uh, uh, appreciation of Chinese currency, the renminbi, to a kind of uh, high. Uh, that reflects kind of the uh, sanguine sentiment about the uh, uh, Democratic White House and Democratic uh, Congress. That means maybe a Democrat-led uh, U.S. government will be uh, stimulating the economy uh, uh, with, uh, to a large extent and definitely um, will give the economy a shot in the arm. So, and also a reset through bilateral relationship. So I would think that uh, uh, definitely the, the, the capital markets reflect this kind of the, uh, uh, you know, this the positive uh, attitude toward a democratic White House. But uh, having said that, I would emphasize that uh, neither Republican nor Democratic government will change the course of action for the longer term uh, bilateral relations. That means I think one of the few consensus here in, in, in Washington is that China uh, is destined to challenge the world order uh, set up by the U.S. Uh, in the wake of World War II, and uh, uh, there's no way for China to change its course. So China is destined to be a challenge um, or confront the U.S. interest, at least in the West Pacific region, I mean, Asia Pacific region. So, so that means that uh, there's no way or no easy way out of these, these uh, long-term competitive or confrontational uh, relationship between the, our, uh, these two countries. That's, that's interesting. Uh, Tosh, what about in Japan? Uh, speaking of, of sort of long-term issues, Japan is one of the United States' key allies in Asia. Americans like to say the U.S.-Japan alliance is the cornerstone of peace and stability in the region. How does Japan see the U.S. election and how does it see the candidates? Tosh, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, uh, so the U.S. election is an election that the world watches, and Japan is no exception. Um, everybody is following the events in the United States very closely. Um, it is the big event of November, um, no doubt. Um, I think Japan is one of the few countries that was able to continue a solid relationship despite uh, a president who really changed the boundaries or the, uh, you know, shifted paradigms. Um, but Abe uh, did a remarkably uh, good job 
of, of maintaining the relationships. Um, if this is an ex this is, for example, uh, Germany under uh, Merkel uh, had difficulties. And so I think uh, the Japanese government realizes uh, the importance of the US-Japan alliance. And this alliance is not based on whether the president is democratic or Republican, it doesn't matter. So Japan is, is willing and looking forward to working with uh, either president. That being said, uh, there are certain points of, of, of issues that concern Japan. One is that uh, the host nation support negotiations uh, need to be conducted uh, fairly soon. Uh, as we all know, uh, Korea had a very difficult time in these negotiations and they actually had to, uh, to pay a lot more than they used to. Um, I'm sure the Japanese are prepared to pay more just not the amount that the Americans are uh, most likely will request. Just for our uh, our listeners who may not be familiar with, with host nation support, could you explain that? In yeah, so uh, Japan, uh, the, the, the Americans uh, protect in Japan through the U.S.-Japan uh, Security Treaty, yet it is not a free ride. The Japanese provide bases, but not only bases, it also provides uh, funding to uh, allow these bases to operate as personnel, uh, utility costs, whatnot is, is covered by Japan. I believe Japan pays uh, the most out of any uh, allied nations. Uh, and this is a very significant chunk. And this is, this is also the reason why, um, for example, the US Navy uh, has its ships repaired in Yokosuka. And that is because the, the repairs are done basically for free and at, at a very high quality at that. Uh, and so, and another issue is with Trump, um, there is worry, there's concern that he probably, he perhaps does not understand uh, the value of alliances and that his view of uh, geopolitics is a little bit different than the, the average view. And so um, even though things were good so far, because Japan has had a new prime minister now, Suga, uh, I guess the, the prevalent view is perhaps Suga would have an easier time dealing with Biden because Biden is of a more traditional sort of politician. Right. Um, and that's certainly, it seems like Prime Minister Abe uh, did establish a, a real rapport with uh, President Trump in a way that yeah, you mentioned German Prime Minister Merkel, uh, but but I think or German Chancellor Merkel, but I think uh, also Canadian listeners here would, would probably say that uh, the yeah. president's relationship with Prime Minister Trudeau was also uh, tumultuous at times. Uh, Sean, I, I want to come back to your point um, that over the long term, nothing is is really going to change. Uh, the course of this sort of U.S.-China rivalry, regardless of its uh, of of who's in the White House, um, but it it does seem interesting that her Chinese perspectives on President Trump have changed significantly. I, I was in Beijing, for example, in the in 2016, and at the time, a lot of Chinese observers. Uh, thought that Hillary Rodham Clinton would be tough on China because of her previous statements on human rights, but they saw Donald Trump as someone who was more pragmatic uh, and someone they could deal with because he had this business background and he was adept at making deals. Now that that seems to have flipped, uh, Rush Doshi 
uh, from the Brookings Institution had an article in Foreign Policy magazine earlier this week saying that Trump was actually accelerating American decline and that because of that, Chinese, particularly the Chinese government, saw this as a positive thing in the long term, although they, they realized that there was a short-term risk. I'm wondering if you could talk about a bit how perceptions, Chinese perceptions of, of President Trump have changed in the past four years. Yeah, I think um, actually before the election year and uh, the COVID-19, I think China still thought um, a transactional Trump administration is a uh, better choices than a uh, democratic and human rights oriented, you know, um, left wing government in the White House. But the election year movement and also the COVID nineteen, I changed the Chinese uh, thought upon uh, the merits of uh, Trump's reelection. So let me give you one example. Actually, you notice that uh, actually in early uh, the middle of the early, uh, January, so actually the Senate U.S. signed the phase one trade deal. It's really a landmark, uh, uh, you know, a treatment in terms of the trade war. We call it the suspension of the escalation of the of the escalating trade the trade war. I think if you really uh, uh, closely examine the causes of in, in the treaty, you will find actually this is quite unfair. A treaty from a perspective of Chinese, because actually the Trump um, uh, uh, in the place of the uh, you know twenty five percent of tariffs on around the three hundred seventy billion Chinese exports, while China uh, agreeing to uh, open up its door to the uh, U.S. the services sector and uh, promising to buy around uh, two hundred billion um, U.S. manufacturing goods and agricultural stuff, things like this. So my sense is that by signing this trade one deal, China wants to put the wind into Trump's re-election sales. But the COVID-19 and uh, um, subsequently uh, Trump's the uh, anti-China rhetoric and behavior really make China think twice about the merits of his re-election. Because in my mind, at least Trump hit two bottom lines when it comes to the U.S.-China relations. Number one is the Taiwan issue. We have seen actually a serious elevation of the diplom diplomatic relations between Washington and the Taipei. And the Trump government sent a lot of cabinet level officials to Taiwan and also, you know, like Secretary Pompeo actually broke the uh, uh, historical diplomatic protocol by, you know, uh, congratulating uh, Taiwan's leaders' uh, inauguration, uh, you know, so all these things really make China uh, embarrassed and irritated about the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Trump's government, the anti-China uh, behavior. So the other thing is that if you look back at a series of remarks and speeches by high-ranking uh, Trump administration officials, including the Vice President Mike Pence, you will see um, actually um, those words try to separate uh, China's ruling party from the public, the mass public. I would say this is a wedge strategy. Uh, the, the, the Washington trying to uh, drive a wedge between the Chinese public and its uh, ruling elite. I think this is really unimaginable even uh, years ago. Uh, so it's a kind of smacks of the uh, regime change. So in my view, 
So I think these two, um, you know, um, Trump's behavior, I mean, uh, really hit the bottom line of the uh, Chinese the, uh, uh, thought about the merits and, uh, and the uh, possible benefits brought by uh, another term of Trump presidency. So, uh, so as I think even Democratic government will not change the course in the long term, but at least temporarily, I would say, uh, because at least three um, areas of cooperation between uh, our two countries, the number one is climate change, and uh, the other is about the, the fighting against COVID-19, and the president, uh, sorry, uh, Joe Biden has promised that the, number, the first thing, uh, once he is in the White House, is to uh, rejoin the WHO. So uh, the other is about the economic recovery, and also definitely the uh, non-nuclear, uh, non uh, proliferation campaign. So I think definitely we have something in common when it comes to the uh, 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 bilateral relations. So I would argue that at least we can seek kind of a short-term reprieve from you know the past one or two or three years the uh, escalation of bilateral relations. So I'm not, I'm not uh, you know naive to say uh, Trump, uh, Biden's presidency will change everything but it definitely will, um, you know, um, put this conflict in a little bit back burner and uh, trying to find something, you know, more urgent so we can join hands to, uh, to deal with that. Right. Uh, Tosh, what about uh, in, in Japan? How have uh, perceptions of, of President Trump changed over the past four years? And, and also, how do you how do different parts of the Japanese political establishment uh, view him? Are there any differences there between the, uh, the, yes, the right yes. and the left um, wings? Yes. Um, well, first of all, I think uh, many Japanese do not understand why a leader of such a wealthy nation can allow, you know, we, we see on the TV shows, these very, very long food lines, how millions of Americans are becoming impoverished because of pandemic Yet uh, there is no true leadership from the current U.S. president, uh, not only globally, but also uh, domestically. Um, he himself uh, gets sick with the corona. You have, what is it, 210,000 Americans have died. And that, that is very hard for most Japanese to understand. How can this person be a leader of, of a nation that which we respect and which we admire? And so, yes, I think the average Japanese has a lot of doubts of Trump. Um, is, it, is it safe for the world? Is it good for the world to have him um, you know, have a second term? Uh, but the other, other hand, uh, conservatives in Japan, and, and as you know, the current government is a conservative government, uh, have a different view. And, and they appreciate Trump for the fact that um, he is standing up to China. And they believe that he's very, very tough on China and that he's very, very pro-Taiwan. Um, with the Trump presidency, you have winners and losers globally. Of course, the obvious loser would probably be Iran, uh, but I guess countries like, um, maybe I shouldn't use their country, but Taiwan uh, uh, and is Israel, for sure, are, are clear winners. Um, but uh, like Sean mentioned, I mean, the, this Trump's approach to Taiwan does uh, exacerbate tensions with uh, Beijing. And so that's also a concern for Japan because China is Japan's neighbor. Uh, that, uh, bad relations between the two superpowers uh, does not um, 
impact Japan in a positive way. So yeah, but this is where I take issue with, with the conservatives is that I believe that Trump is still basically a transactional president and that he is using the anti-China rhetoric to win the election. And deep down, he will strike a deal with the Chinese if he's giving a second term. Whereas with the Democrats, it is more, uh, it's, you know, it's more ingrained. The fact that uh, human rights is important. Uh, it's, I think it's harder to see or seek a common ground with the Chinese. So in the mid to long term, I think a democratic government would be much more difficult for Beijing to deal with. And so if you factor that in, I think the Japanese, at least within the political establishment, uh, see Trump as being more, you know, uh, more predictable. I mean, even he is a president who operates off script, he is very uh, un unpredictable in the sense that, you know, compared to past presidents, because we have seen four years of Trump, that a lot of the unknowns have become knowns. And I think the Japanese believe that they can deal with that. But again, that, that also goes with the fact of the alliance, you know, does Trump value the alliance? Uh, but this is mitigated. We're just talking about the presidents now, but we also need to look at the staff, the people who support the president. And this is where I think Trump's attraction increases when you have people such as Pompeo, who's vehemently anti-China. He has taken a very strong position. This, I think, is comfort for uh, conservatives. The problem with Biden is not Biden himself, but uh, the, the, the shadow of Obama. So for many Japanese, see, the fact the problem with China is because Obama did not take a strong position. You know, it was you know, the red line uh, towards Syria is a good example. But with China, he felt that if you make China a stakeholder, then China would be act as a responsible power. And that was all fiction. It did not happen. And so, the, you know, what we're seeing in the South China Sea, we're making a big fuss about that. But the Chinese aren't going to leave. I mean, because we, we allowed them to create these artificial islands. So they're there to stay. Right. And, and who allowed this? Oh, it was Obama. And it was especially Susan Rice. And there's very strong resentment towards uh, a return of Susan Rice to the administration. And um, you're grinning, uh, Christopher, but uh, you know, it's, it's, my, it's, not, it's not my personal opinion. It's the people that I speak to within government that they're very afraid. And I tell them that, that the situation has changed. So even with a democratic government, you're not going to go you know, see uh, continuation of Obama's foreign policy towards China. I think there's, I think, you know, the world has seen because of the pandemic of what the reality is, you know, with, with China and what China constitutes is not, is a nation that in which we do not have shared values. So I think it's um, important for the Biden administration to convince uh, worried allies that, hey, it's, that's gonna, we're not going to return to where we were, is, is how I see it. I'm, I'm, I'm grinning because, uh, well, I mean, this is really a question for Sean, but I, I suspect there may be some in, in Beijing who were not great fans of, of Susan Rice, uh, President <laughs> Obama's national security advisor also. So, uh, you know, if, if you've managed to uh, uh, make enemies or, or make friends in, in both China and Japan, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, Sean, what do you think about uh, what Tosh was just saying with uh, the prospects that uh, if President Trump won, he could reach some kind of uh, rapprochement, a, a greater deal with China in a second term, 
Whereas Joe Biden, even if he did succeed in sort of lowering the temperature and putting things on the back burner, would still have to deal with these issues of the Democratic Party uh, that place an emphasis on, on things like human rights and, and how much of a barrier would that be to really achieving a, a, an agreement with China? So actually, in the first place, I'm a big doubter of the so-called uh, phase two trade deal because all low, low lying fruits have been picked up. I don't see any possibility to push him ahead with phase two deal. If, if, big, if Trump really wins the White House, I don't know where both sides can sit down and begin the negotiation about trade, a second, second trade, sec, phase two sec, trade deal. Because actually it's talking about, you know, the change of Chinese state-owned enterprises and the reduction of uh, subsidies. It's a regular overhaul of Chinese system. So we always talk about the decoupling. I don't think a total decoupling is, is, is possible because of the unprecedented interlink between our two countries. But at least two areas, I do see the possibility and also actually kind of realization of the, uh, of the uh, decoupling. So another, the first one, I think definitely tech, and the other is that, uh, you know, the social governance. So when it comes to social governance, I echo Professor Tosh's uh, words that actually they are deepening and actually deviating views when it comes to how to run a country. And I think China, in that respect, deviates away from uh, what has been guiding the Western democracy for, for centuries and China definitely destined to uh, take another way or we call it third pass. So you, you can name it. So definitely, I think, uh, I don't see any possibility to, uh, to have a phase two deal with deal. Let me, uh, let me ask another question real quick. We, we have a few minutes left. Uh, the vice presidential candidates have gotten more attention this year in the United States because the, the presidential candidates are uh, both in their 70s. Uh, and you know, we all, one of the vice presidential candidates, uh, Mike Pence, the current vice president, uh, is you know, well known on the international stage. Uh, the other vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, is not as well known, even though she is a senator from California. Uh, she's also uh, of, uh, of Indian extraction. Her, her mother immigrated from India to the United States in the 60s, which would make her the first Asian American uh, to hold uh, national office at that level. And, uh, and she would also be the first African American uh, vice president because her father uh, immigrated from Jamaica. Well, uh, what, do, uh, what do people in China and uh, Japan, uh, how do they see uh, the two vice presidential candidates? Sean, why don't you start real quick? Okay, um, because I think the, uh, Mike Pence definitely is kind of, you call it evangelical Christian and is very conservative. And I, but uh, I don't think he has any you know, big publicity here in China. And, but people just view um, him as attacking dog of President Trump. So, you know, uh, being behalf Trump uh, attacking on China, on, uh, so, uh, um, you know, uh, and, the, and practicing his behavior. So about the, uh, uh, the, the, the vice president elect, uh, sorry, uh, uh, candidate Harris, I think he really interesting that uh, she got an English, a Chinese name because uh, she's come from California. So her uh, Chinese name is Hu Jingli. So it's kind of unwarranted, I would say unwarranted affection for kind of guy who has sort of a relationship or connection to Chinese. So whatever is a Chinese, you know, face 
uh, Chinese name. So this is kind of unwarranted um, uh, affection, uh, I mean, from, from, from Chinese perspective. But I would, I, I would argue from my experience dealing with the, uh, these Chinese Americans or you know, people who have really deep knowledge of China, I would say those guys really uh, know how to deal with China smartly and more intelligently and uh, don't have any um, illusion about um, people who have uh, who, who have the uh, Chinese connection will be become you know more uh, 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 more, more hospitable toward China so I think this is definitely an illusion and, and let's let's just explain she has a Chinese name because she was an elected official in California and used it to attract Chinese voters, Chinese American voters in California. Exactly. Yeah. Tosh, we've got one minute left. What about in Japan? How do they see the two vice presidential candidates? Well, you know, so Mike Pence, um, he's, he's very hard to understand from Japanese standards. Uh, the world, the term evangelical does not exist in this country. Uh, religion is taken uh, with a little bit more stride. Um, I guess the big question that Japanese have is what does Mike Pence think deep down about his president? <laughs> uh, with uh, towards Kamala Harris, I think this is a, this is great because uh, Japan is a country that has never had a female prime minister, has never had a minority prime minister. I think lots of young Japanese, especially women, and, and minorities within Japan, are saying, "Oh, this is this is an example. If America can elect a minority female president, that that's 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 good for Japan because Japan always, you know." Is, is, is not proactive, is reactive. And so perhaps can understand the trend that's happening not only in New Zealand or Europe. You know, this is the way to go. <laughs> well, that's great. We'll, we'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank again, uh, Sean Huang and Tosh Minahara for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find out more about this podcast series and other SIPS events by going to our webpage, sips-cepi.ca. And by following us on Twitter at at UOttawaCIPS. Until next time from the University of Ottawa, goodbye. China, China, China. I have to have my China. China, China, because China, 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 China,